Hello, my name is Josh Hirsch, and I'm one of the associate editors at the JNIS. I'd like to thank Philippe Albuquerque and the entire editorial staff of the JNIS for asking us and allowing us to do this very important podcast. By way of background, stroke care changed dramatically. First in October of 2014, when word broke out about this exciting study, Mr. Clean, and the results being more positive than uh, people dared expect. That was soon followed by multiple positive randomized controlled trials demonstrating what the people on this podcast knew, that endovascular treatment for large vessel stroke was incredibly beneficial in the right patients. As part of that exciting new wave of opportunity to help these patients, there has been technical advances, triage advances, and now discussion about how we might apply these treatments to a greater percentage of patients across this great nation. To that end, Drs. Hopkins and Holmes wrote a piece, a commentary really, a perspective they called it, in circulation. It says public health urgency created by the success of mechanical thrombectomy studies in stroke and argues strongly for the inclusion of many more non-neuro-based practitioners in the treatment of elbow. They make interesting points, and as I'll uh, hopefully say at the end again, I would welcome them onto this podcast series to discuss their perspective. Today, however, we're lucky enough to have David Fiorella and Shazam Hussain, who are uh, authors in the uh, editorial comment in defense of our patients. Uh, in defense of our patients was co-authored by all of the neuroendovascular societies, the SNIS, the joint section of both of the neurosurgery societies, and the SVIN. And it is a provocative commentary in the June issue of JNIS. I would say about the three participants in the podcast, Dave Fiorella is a member of a neurosurgery department. He's an interventional neuroradiologist. Shazam is an endovascular neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic, which is a center-type uh, care. That center has all three members of the neurovascular triad participating in the care of these types of patients. And with a little bit of pride, I would point out that at my own center, we were the first to embrace all participants in the neurovascular triad as staff members in that model exists even today. With that, uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thank, Thank you for you having so me, Sean. It's a, it's a pleasure. I mean, I think the, the article you wrote speaks for itself, and I would say the title is itself provocative. I mean, we could talk about the use of in defense, but what I really would like to focus on, uh, let's start with you, Shazam, is why you chose the word hour, the possessive word hour to describe stroke patients. Well, the uh, stroke patients in general, remember that stroke is a, a very devastating disease. It's a fifth leading cause of death and the number one cause of disability. Uh, despite this being such a profound disease in the United States, it's often been actually a neglected disease. And I, I think uh, over the course of time, we've seen the neurointerventional community in particular kind of pick up the flag for the, this patient group, really trying to advance care for the most severe type of strokes, the elbow emergent large vessel occlusion type strokes. So I think you know, over the years, uh, in, a, in a disease that's often been neglected, we've actually been one of the big proponents for how to advance care in this field. 
Uh, as you mentioned before, there's been great advancements in the care. We now have great evidence behind uh, thrombectomy, which is one of the most effective treatments for, for stroke. And I think, uh, you know, having been in this field a while, I think neurointerventional practitioners and various societies feel that we want to maintain very, very high quality, high standards to ensure that our patients get the best care. So when you say our, or when the authors say our, it really more reflects that there is such an investment of energy, time, spirit during an era when actually we could have faced national coverage determinations that were unfavorable for stroke. We've developed a, a bond with these patients. Is that uh, why we use the possessive hour in the title? I think that's absolutely correct. I, I think this, as a disease state, this is certainly something that uh, interventionalists, neurointerventionalists feel very strongly is a part of the conditions that we treat, and it's one of the main conditions that we treat. So we, we feel very, very vested in how these patients should be cared for and uh, how, our, how we can get more patients this kind of high-quality treatment. Yeah, and I would just second sort of uh, what Shazam is saying in terms of the uh, investment that this entire neurointerventional community has made in this patient group. And that investment is reflected, I think, primarily not only in dedication that's occurred in terms of treating these patients and advancing the trials, but really more fundamentally in the training that all of the people who practice in the field of neurointervention have undertaken and completed. So everybody who's currently practicing in neurointervention has uh, for the most part, dedicated uh, at least one, typically two full years of training, 24-7, not some type of training on the side or on the weekends or taking a training course, but two full years of dedicated training, doing that and nothing else but training to do neurointervention uh, for that period of time. And it's really that length and amount of hours that needs to be put in for a practitioner not only to have the catheter skills necessary to perform mechanical thrombectomy and the other procedures that we do, but also involves the assessment and uh, decision-making process in terms of managing patients and choosing which patients are good to go for thrombectomy, looking and interpreting uh, multimodality in neuroimaging, especially the advanced imaging that's currently coming out with the more advanced MR imaging techniques that are being applied in stroke as well as uh, CT and CT perfusion techniques. And then finally, in the interprocedural and post-procedural management of the complications that can occur in these types of patients. And so I think without having put in that amount of time and that type of dedicated fellowship training, in addition to whatever initial subspecialty training that you've had, you really haven't earned the privilege or have the skill set to take care of, of these types of patients. And I think that's really sort of the fundamental point that uh, we wanted to make in the, in the article. And Dave, I think you made it very well. In fact, uh, I'm going to read you what I had planned to ask as my next question. I think you've already addressed it, uh, but uh, I think let's let's do it as part of a, a rhythmic kind of flow. If you have things to add, uh, that would be great. Otherwise, we'll move on to the next question. So quoting directly the editorial, opinions expressed by doctors Hopkins and Holmes lead to unwarranted conclusions that have dangerous implications for patient care. Their article reflects, number one, and this is what I was going to ask you to comment on, Dave, a disregard for training, expertise, and experience in the management of a disease that may lead to death or disability when treating physicians do not have them. Dave, would you say your prior comments encapsulated that argument? Uh, yeah, I think that was a particularly disappointing aspect of the uh, article 
which ironically is, is authored in part by Dr. Nick Hopkins, who's really been at the forefront of our field, particularly in regards to, to training uh, neurosurgeons and uh, other subspecialties to do neural intervention. Uh, his training program is an extensive uh, one to two year training program for neurosurgeons that, again, is uh, all encompassing and requires many hours per week training uh, consistently for two years to acquire this skill set. And so it, it doesn't make sense to me how somebody who requires that of their own trainees would then suggest that cardiologists could grab catheters or other subspecialists could grab catheters and just based on the merits of knowing how to put a catheter into a vessel would then be able to do stroke intervention. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just to make uh, a quick comment myself as moderator, I did find the argument uh, in the predicate article by Hopkins and Holmes about cardiologists having greater familiarity with atherosclerotic disease to be somewhat of an obfuscation of the uh, issue at hand. Uh, but again, that's this uh, reader. Uh, let's let's pivot to Shaz. Shaz, you uh, are, are going to be charged with explaining this second comment, which was fairly strong, I thought. Um, again, talking about the predicate article and the... Uh, the way the authors construe their argument, a misunderstanding of the fundamental underpinnings of stroke physiology and anatomy. What were Dr. Hopkins and Holmes getting uh, wrong such that they had that misunderstanding? Well, I think it's important to recognize that the brain is the most complex organ, and, and neurointervention has a very significant complexity to it, which I agree with you know, Dr. Fiorella in his comments that really this isn't something that one can just jump into. We really advocate that people, whatever their background of training, that they really have to spend dedicated time, at least probably two years of dedicated training, to properly learn how to um, deal with the cerebral vasculature in, in a proper and safe manner. I think when it comes to stroke specifically, I think one has to recognize that the, the disease is very heterogeneous. The causes for stroke are multiple. Uh, you know, certainly there are disease states where they have, uh, we, we do have insight to atherosclerotic disease, similar to what you would see in the coronary circulation, but we also have multiple other causes for stroke, such as embolization, whether it could come from the carotid artery or from a cardiac source like atrial fibrillation, perhaps from even other sources other than that. Um, and then all of these different stroke physiologies may have actually different approaches when it comes to the cerebral vasculature in terms of stroke treatment. So to equate uh, cardiac intervention with cerebral intervention is a very, it's very much a stretch uh, based on, if you, if you really look back at the underlying physi physiology and anatomy of, of these different uh, disease states. And of course, in your own uh, response, I mean, the response in defense of our patients, but uh, you primarily authored Chasm on behalf of this a very auspicious group of authors. You point out the the idea, I think it was a, a hepatic surgeon and a cardiac surgeon. I think those were the two, both being trained in surgery and having the notion that one would fill in for the other just because they have the same or some similar basic skill sets of how to do surgery but don't really know much about the end organ as preposterous as that example was meant to be, you were in this article highlighting the uh, similarity between equating cardiac care and uh, stroke care. Dave, let's, let's swing to you because there were three primary arguments we've covered. Two 
the third one, uh, again, talking about the first predicate article, was a false association between a real problem, which is underdeveloped systems of care, and a spurious assumption that there are not enough physicians trained to perform intracranial mechanical thrombectomy. Of course, Dave, this has been a, a topic you've been passionate about for a long time, and uh, I've had the privilege of hearing you speak on it, so I'd ask you to, to address that association and the challenges with it right now. Yeah, um, so the basic underpinnings of the argument that's put forth is, I agree, completely spurious. And the idea behind uh, taking subspecialists who aren't at all trained in neurointervention and, and, and pushing them or inviting them into neurointervention and to do mechanical thrombectomies is completely predicated upon this falsehood that there are patients who are currently not being treated with large vessel occlusion simply because there is an absence or lack of a sufficient number of neurointerventionists. And this just is not the case in any developed area of the country, any major urban or suburban area. Uh, these places are not only populated by a sufficient number of neurointerventionists, but most of the markets now in the United States are overpopulated by neurointerventionists. In fact, there are more neurointerventionists than we currently need to treat the volume of strokes that we're confronted with. Uh, if you just consider the numbers, uh, there are probably somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500 physicians currently trained to do neurointervention in the United States, and we're currently doing less than or just about 20,000 mechanical thrombectomies per year. If that number were to even double to 40,000 mechanical thrombectomies per year, 1,200 physicians being trained to do it, say, as a conservative estimate, that's only 33 stroke cases per neurointerventionist per year which amounts to on the order of 2.5 to 2.7 cases per month per neurointerventionist. And so clearly, even with the doubling of the number of stroke cases, this is a more than handleable volume of cases that we're talking about. Stroke is just not as prevalent. Uh, stroke me needed to be treated with mechanical thrombectomy is just not as prevalent as, say, coronary artery disease uh, requiring angioplasty and stenting or some type of, of intervention. And so this idea that there are so many mechanical thrombectomy patients flooding into institutions that are staffed by neurointerventionists that the neurointerventionists cannot uh, handle this volume is, is completely spurious. And so then where are there shortages of neurointerventionists? Where are patients not being treated? Well, if we look to the very rural areas of the United States, there are potentially pockets of very low population density where there are patients who don't have access to uh, early mechanical thrombectomy. And what I would argue is that in these locations, there are so few patients that the number of large vessel occlusions that occur there will never be sufficient to support a neurointerventionist in that region that can treat that disease uh, process. Just as uh, somebody who's uh, in some type of very rural area doesn't have access to, say, a, a liver transplant or if they're in some type of major uh, motor vehicle accident and say has a torn aorta or something like that, those patients are not likely going to have access to a uh, level one trauma center or level one trauma surgery to have uh, these types of injuries repaired. So there are always going to be portions of the country that are not covered by the most advanced medical services that we have to offer, and that's just one of the trade-offs of living in, a, in an area like that. And what I would suggest is that the cardiologists who are considering getting into mechanical thrombectomy are not the rural, non-academic cardiologists, but are, in fact, the most academic, most advanced cardiologists, many of whom are practicing 
at the highest level academic institutions in the country that are more than adequately staffed currently with neurointerventionists. And so this idea that cardiologists are required to supplement the workforce because there are patients that are going untreated because of an absence of neurointerventional physicians is absolutely false. And there's no place that it is more false than in the large urban areas and large academic centers, which are all of which are in the United States currently uh, more than adequately staffed with a neurointerventionist to cover stroke. I'd like to add as well, I, I think it, you know, it, we also are still missing the fundamental issue, which is that we really need to work on the systems of care to try to get these patients to the correct hospital immediately so they can receive these kinds of treatment. Uh, increasing, I agree with Dr. Fiorella, the increase in the number of interventionalists, regardless if you bring in other specialties or not, is not going to solve that underlying issue. Uh, what we really need to do is work with our partners in EMS, uh, work with uh, hospital systems and other state officials to really design systems of care, similar to what has been done with trauma and with uh, cardiac systems of care to really get these patients to the pro appropriate hospital as quickly as possible so they can get the high-quality treatment they deserve. Yeah, I, well well said, Chasm. I, I, I think if I could break it down using actually an expression from the predicate article where Hopkins and Holmes describe a potentially cataclysmic gap between patient need and available expertise. What Fiorella would say in his prior answer is not really, not for most places, and certainly not in the places that cardiologists are talking about getting involved. And Chasm, you would say, it's a straw man. We should be focusing on systems of care. We should be focusing on the many, many other elements of uh, optimizing stroke care rather than taking a group of additional people who could potentially provide mechanical thrombectomy. Any other thoughts, gentlemen, before we conclude? I think that's an excellent summary. So the idea is, while there may be patients who have large vessel occlusion who are not being treated with mechanical thrombectomy, the reason that they are not being treated is not related to a shortage or lack of capable physicians, but is primarily and directly related to the inability of the current systems of care to deliver those patients efficiently to mechanical thrombectomy centers. And that really has to be the primary focus of our efforts going forward. I think that uh, this has been a terrific uh, high energy for a term from the prior presidential campaign, as loath as I am to do that podcast. I think uh, there's clearly going to be opportunity for more discussion. As I mentioned before, uh, if we receive uh, the go-ahead, I would love to invite uh, Dr. Hopkins and Holmes potentially to participate on the podcast or potentially have a debate between uh, one of those folks and one of the discussants today. Well, this concludes our podcast. I'd like to thank our listening audience as well as, of course, Drs. Hussein and Fiorella for this spirited and interesting discussion. This article is open access and available online first at the JNIS website. Its title, In Defense of Our Patients, says it all. <laughs>